Stand with me, and if you have a Bible, I hope you do, you can turn to the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. Chapter 8 is where we pick up our ongoing study of this wonderful good news unto us. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can use one of the chairback Bibles there in front of you, and you'll find our text this morning on page 894. We're going to pick up where Seth left off two weeks ago. And we'll begin in verse 31 of chapter 8 and take it all the way to the end of the chapter uh, this morning. So let me uh, read that portion of God's Word for us and uh, then pray for the Lord's blessing and we'll continue uh, together. So listen now as the Lord does speak to you uh, through His perfect Word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And I said to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever hears is of God, and hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you not of God. And the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and yet you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. 
If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do bow before you now, seeking you with our whole heart. Our only comfort in our present condition is that your promise gives us life. And so may the unfolding of your truth this morning bring light to darkened souls. And we do pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, he who is the light of the world. Amen. You may be seated. Fathers matter. It's a timeless truth that human history has Illustrated in no small number of ways. Fathers matter. It's why in one of his first actions after taking office, President Obama initiated what he called the the fatherhood initiative. It's why just a few weeks ago I was reading a recent study uh, that said the single greatest predictor of children who are raised in the church, staying in the church... The single greatest predictor of that is whether or not their dad sang on Sunday mornings. Fathers matter. It's why a few weeks ago I was sitting down with a pastor who serves in a sister church in our denomination many miles away from here. And he gave me a brochure at our breakfast. It's our normal pattern when we are away from the church in the summer. And this year is just three months we were away on sabbatical that we like to visit churches where old friends serve as pastors or sister churches in our denomination. And this summer, as I was away, normally the rhythm looked something like this. About every other week, I was preaching at churches that need pulpit supply. And then the in-between weeks, we'd visit a church where uh, the pastor is a close friend of mine. Or it was a church in our denomination, churches that stretched from Texas to Colorado to Utah to uh, Montana and Wyoming. And as time allows and schedules allow. Uh, we, we tried to get together, or at least I tried to get together with maybe the local PCA pastor, and so it was. I was a few weeks ago sitting down uh, with a local PCA pastor where we were in the Rocky Mountain Presbytery, and uh, this brother had served in a small town, in a small church for many years under this gorgeous mountain range. And as we met for the first time, he greeted me at breakfast by handing me a brochure. And I genuinely think in decades now of meeting other pastors, that's the first time it's ever happened getting a brochure right from the outset. But as we uh, began to converse and get to know each other, there are so many similar interests and desires we had for the church. And I got to hear his background. I understood quite quickly uh, why he had given me this brochure because it was related to a nonprofit ministry that he had created, a nonprofit ministry that's now very large in our country, a nonprofit ministry that understands that fathers matter as it seeks to serve Christ's love and truth to fatherless boys. 
And I tell you that fathers matter is because Jesus is telling us that in John chapter 8 today. Maybe you notice as I read the text, 13 times in 29 verses, he speaks of a father. And what he's out to do this morning in the continuing conversation he has with the Jews there in Jerusalem is actually he's initiating a confrontation now over who really is their father. Because if you're with us two weeks ago, if you just glance back to the first half of chapter 8, you'll notice in verse 16 and 18 of chapter 8, Jesus speaks about being sent from his heavenly father. But then he says in verse 19, after they ask him, where is your father? He says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So clearly by implication, he's saying, you don't think I'm sorry, the father you think you have is not the one you really do have. And so all I have to bring to your attention this morning in John chapter 8 along the way in our rather large text is this theme of a paternity dispute. The Jews think they have a father. And Jesus says, no, you don't. And Jesus says, I have a father. And you don't possess him. And what I want to show you by the end of the passage is that the paternity dispute really gives us today a paternity test that we might know to which father we belong. Because as these things so often go in the Gospels, what we find out is that there is no neutrality in Christianity. There's no third way. You can have only one of two fathers in this life. Now, children, of course, I'm not speaking of natural fathers. Jesus is speaking here of spiritual fathers. And the text means to confront you over which father you actually belong to. And so if you recognize where we are at this portion of John's gospel, chapter 5 through 10 is largely out to show us that Jesus is the Messiah and he's equal with God. Uh, you may have seen even at the end of chapter 8 where they ask him in verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? In ways that is singular and altogether striking, this text is going to answer that question once and for all in a way that no Jew could have possibly escaped the implications of its truth. Jesus, who do you say that you are? Well, he's there in Jerusalem, isn't he, during the Feast of Booths. It was an annual feast to which all Jews were called to participate. It happened at the end of the year. They would ascend up to Jerusalem where they would celebrate and give thanks to God for the agricultural harvest of that year. Uh, alongside that celebration and thanksgiving, they would commemorate their identity as a wilderness people in generations past as the Lord had brought them out of Egypt, slavery and bondage there under Pharaoh, to freedom and fullness in the promised land. And in those wilderness wanderings, they were living in booths. They were living in temporary tents. They were living in tabernacles. And so they would come into Jerusalem to commemorate that. As best we can tell in the Jewish religious calendar, this would have been the most festive time in Israel's annual year. Joy, celebration, gratitude was uniquely present at the festival of booths. But what we know by this point in John's gospel is Jesus is also present at the festival of booths. And when Jesus shows up with his presence and his preaching, he tends to shake things up, doesn't he? He's, in many ways, stopped all of the regular excitement. He's stifled all of that regular thanksgiving because his preaching, his presence is causing people to think differently about the long-expected Messiah who was to come. 
And kids, I hope you know that it's true that, that when Jesus shows up, things stop going as normal, don't they? You know, the same old things and in the same old way is not possible after a confrontation with Jesus. You know, he comes to convict, he comes to speak the truth, he comes to comfort, he, he comes to warn, he comes to offer himself. And the fullness of what Jesus comes to do means you can't leave an encounter with Jesus unchanged. And I hope that would be a true of you today. So the text has two parts. First, he speaks about the Jews' father. Secondly, we're going to notice Jesus' father. You look again at the beginning of our text, verse 31. John tells us that he said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So students, you want to notice from the outset that what's initiating this part of the conversation with the Jews is that in light of what they had just heard, that Jesus is the light of the world, that long-expected messianic revelation of light and darkness has come in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice the very end of two weeks ago's text, verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And now it's as though he looks in the faces of many of those Jews who believed in him and says this, if you are truly my disciples, you will keep my word. So the context right here from the outset is Jesus is addressing people who have professed faith in him, telling them that they must persevere in their faith in him if they're truly his disciples. Kids, what Jesus is saying is is that it's possible to have fake faith. Faith that may believe something about Jesus, but doesn't in the end prove to be true abiding faith in Jesus. Perhaps you're in a situation like that where you've grown up in the church. Perhaps you just attended church, started attending church recently, and you've heard something about Jesus and you believe it. Yet, as time goes on, what does life show but that it never really took root in your heart? The cares of the world choke it out. The trials of affliction quench out the flame. Or what you initially heard about Jesus and you believed was true, then you understand the radical demands and claims that Jesus makes on your life and you say, oh, I can't do any of that. I can't submit to that yoke of the Savior. And it's really submission to him that is the principal point that he's making because he said the truth will set you free. Understandably, notice verse 33, they say to him, the Jews do, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? We're not slaves of anyone, Jesus. Why do, why do we need to be set free? Now, if you were, I suppose, an informed observer At that moment in Jerusalem, you could think to yourself, I'm not so sure that's really true, you Jewish retorting audience. Isn't it true that most of your history, at least in recent centuries, has been one of you being enslaved to Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Syria, even to the Romans? Even, no doubt, many of those pilgrims that would have gathered in the holy city of Zion during that feast were, in fact, servants and bond slaves. But they're not speaking, are they, about any kind of enslavement that's political or social. They're saying, religiously speaking, we are free. Because who are the Jews? What was their self-identity? 
but the chosen people of God, a royal priesthood, a treasured possession for God himself. But notice what Jesus says, not so fast. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You think you're free, when in reality, you are a slave, and your life proves it. You know, we live in a land, don't we, that we hear a lot. Even if you're someone like me that doesn't pay much attention to politics, I still hear a lot about freedoms in America that we rightly and constitutionally celebrate. You know, freedom from government, tyranny and oppression, free trade, free markets, free press, free speech, freedom in religion. And yet, I trust that you know that in a country like ours that that celebrates freedom, that desires freedom, the actual reality in spirituality is many people are slaves to their sin. Because the Bible tells us that mankind, people like you and me, we're born into sin. By nature, we're children of wrath. We are in utter bondage to iniquity. We must be set free from that slavery. And some of you, of course, sitting here today, and you know what it means to be set free from slavery. Sin that once defined your life. No longer has the power upon you because Christ Jesus has freed you. And I I trust as you hear even that good news that the Son sets people free. That maybe even today with renewed joy and thanksgiving, you, you think about the Lord's work in your life. But others of you, perhaps more of you than you might realize, you have not truly known that freedom of which Jesus speaks here. The record of this week, the record of last month, the record of this decade is one of being enslaved to sin. You must be set free. They must be set free. But they don't like the idea, do they? As he continues on, he speaks of these things. Look at what he says in verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So the paternity dispute really takes off after verse 38. Because he's clearly saying, I have a father, and you have a father. And they're not the same. So what do they answer him by saying, verse 39? Well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus now begins to, as it were, maybe what you want to think about him doing in this scene with this confrontation with the Jews is now he's going to present these lines of evidence. Abraham's our father. He's going to present these lines of evidence that mean to show they're not truly his disciples. They're not truly children of God. One of which is, well, True children of God have been freed from sin, and clearly you Jews are still enslaved to sin. Well, the next one relates to Abraham, whom they claim as their father. Notice what he says in verse 39 through 40. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, and this is not what Abraham did. 
In many ways, the, the original idea here is, is they're not making room for God's truth within their hearts. It seems to almost make this allusion to this pivotal place in the book of Genesis 18 where Abraham receives God's word as he is making room for God's messenger angel in that text. And what Jesus is saying here is there's no hospitality for God's word in your heart. There's only hostility towards God's truth in your heart. And that hostility, of course, is seen quite acutely in the fact they want to kill him. Because he says, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. True children of God have a place in their heart for God's word. True children of God love God's Son. The only Savior, those who don't have God as their Father, have no interest in God's Word, have no interest in God's Son. And now Jesus unfolds the reality of their paternal identity, doesn't he? In verse 44, you are what? Of your father, the devil. That's one of these striking passages in New Testament reflection, John 8, 44, that stirs up a number of interesting comments among scholars, or one of the most celebrated New Testament scholars of the last few decades in America, said this about John 8, 44. He calls these words, quote, the most deeply disturbing outburst of anti-Jewish sentiment in the New Testament. John makes a fateful theological step. Because they don't believe in Jesus, they're of the devil. To which you would hope a celebrated New Testament scholar like this would recognize John doesn't make any theological steps here, does he? He's just reporting and recording what Jesus says is true. That you can have one of two fathers. A father in heaven or a father who is none other than the devil himself. Because notice how he goes on to prove just the simplicity of the logic you're of your father, the devil, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You Jewish leaders, you Jewish professing believers, you're all about murder and misleading. So children, who is originally about murder and misleading? But the devil himself, wasn't it leading, misleading, Adam and Eve into that original lie of take and eat and you will be like God? That did what? It plunged all of humanity into an ocean of death. Who is Satan other than the one who is the father of misleading? Who is the one who murders? And you Jews, you just are misleading people and you want to murder me. So of course... You have a father who is named the devil. He goes on to say, if you kind of want to race forward to his conclusion, the final part of verse 47, the reason why you do not hear them, these words of God, the gospel truth as it's found in me, the reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Case closed. The Jews have a father. 
and it isn't God. Now that leads in the back half of our text to Jesus' Father. You know, this last weekend, being Labor Day weekend, was a rather enjoyable time in our household, particularly because uh, one of our children was playing in a soccer tournament over the weekend. And this particular child, uh, he loves Labor Day tournaments because that means there's a potential of him actually getting to play in a championship game. You know, our family's pattern of trying to love the Lord's Day means those championship games that are almost always on Sundays means he never gets to play in them. But on Labor Day, championship games belong on Mondays. And so we woke up Monday morning and played in the semifinal. Well, they won that game and came back in the afternoon and they played in the championship game. And as these things so often go in youth sports, things were getting chippy on the field and on the sideline between parents. And I remember one point with the particular son involved, he had, he had won a challenge against a player on the other team. And that player uh, responded with that kind of old tactic of the defeated. Trash talk. <laughs> the Jews, you need to see here, verse 48, as Jesus is now speaking about his father, what do they do? They're responding with the strategy of the defeated. Petty trash talk. What do they say? Verse 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Ha! Jesus, you say we're of the devil. Well, you're a Samaritan. Well, you say we're of the devil. Well, isn't it true that you, in fact, have a demon too? It's tired, isn't it? It's trite. No doubt at an ultimate level, if you understand what other gospels say about the unpardonable sin, it's utterly terrible. You have a demon, Jesus. We, of course, you notice verse 49 and 50. He says, well, you're dishonoring me. It's the Lord who honors me. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And this is where the confrontation and the conversation uh, begins to really go off rails at this point. Uh, because as the Bible will say in other places, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. And so when Jesus is making these statements that now flow forth from his mouth, the Jews see them as proof that he has lost the plot. As he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And look how they respond in verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And then he goes on to say, doesn't he, in verse 54 and in 50, that he, he in his mission, he's not self-appointed like they think he is. His claims are not self-exalting like they think they are. It's the Father who has appointed him. It's the Father who's exalting him. Incidentally enough, I suppose that it's a good place to encourage those of you pursuing gospel ministry to recognize that, you know, when we go to serve the Lord, we're never self-appointed, self-exalting. We leave it in the Lord's hands to, through us, glorify Jesus Christ. But of course, he says, notice verse 55, you have not known him, that being the Father. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. And here's where it really starts to go crazy. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Natural man cannot understand spiritual truths. They look at Jesus, even though they're graciously granting him, you see in the next part of the passage, five decades of life. How is it that you who are not even 50 years old have have seen him? Jesus, probably closer to 33 years old in age at this time. Of course, children, you understand, was living thousands of years, centuries and centuries after Abraham. And they're like, hold on a second. He saw you, you saw him. What's the conclusion in their sinful minds? But simple logic. Simply, he has a demon. And Jesus says, notice verse 58. Again, using that declarative, demonstrative, repetitive phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Students, when you see that, come from Jesus, hear that come from Jesus. It's like blinking headlights around what he's getting ready to say. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. About 100 years ago, there was an Anglican theologian, professor at a seminary actually at that time up in Canada named Griffith Thomas. And he put his pen to paper and began to write what he called a handbook to present in short, popular form the central subject of Christianity. Now, think about that for a second and try to guess what he says is the central subject of Christianity. Well, the title gives his answer, and it's a good title. The title is simply, Christianity is Christ. And in every scene, in every conversation, what you're getting in the Gospel of John is that truth that Christianity is Christ. Life and death hangs upon what you think about Jesus. Life and death hangs upon what you believe about Jesus. Life and death hangs upon what you hear about Jesus. In this paternity dispute, what I want to do now as we begin to close is help you see how it really gives us a paternity test. There are only two fathers that you could have, Jesus says. And the rest of the biblical record makes abundantly clear. You can be of Satan or of Jesus' Father in heaven. And I wonder which one belongs to you. How might you know? Well, let me give you three things as we begin to close. The first of which is this. True children of God keep Christ's word. True children of God keep Christ's word. It's a theme actually that's quite present. If you just notice it, go back to verse 31. He says right from the outset, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Skip down to verse 47. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Faith that perseveres in the word of Jesus Christ is faith that receives the blessing of Jesus Christ. And truly, of course, the immediate application for us in our context today is not merely that we're to be people about reading and hearing God's word, which is true. We cannot abide, we cannot remain, we cannot keep in Christ's word if we're not hearing it, if we're not reading it. If the stats are right, something like three-quarters of you didn't even open your Bible this week since last Sunday. I hope that's not true 
of this church, but it's certainly the general statistic that the sociologists that study such things say is true about Christians in America. But Jesus is interested more in the obedience that flows from Christ's word, the obedience that proves love of Jesus Christ, the obedience that shows we're truly his disciples. So true children of God, they, they keep Christ's word. Parents, I, I hope that you are, are trying to build a home that rests upon the foundation of Christ's word. If your home is similar to so many in our North Texas context, you realize the hustle and bustle of life in Conley County means sometimes it's kind of possible, sometimes kind of hard, I should say, to, to center your life, your family's life on Christ's word. And maybe you look back on recent months and years and think we've done a poor job. Father's well, grace for today, isn't there? To start anew and start afresh. There's grace for today for all of you to know that what he says, you must keep my word. And he says this to us today by his word and spirit to people this very week and no doubt this very day who haven't kept his word. Who therefore deserve the punishment of death. So where's the good news found for such people? Well, certainly part of the good news is found in what he says. Look at the end of verse 55. I keep his word. I've done what you haven't. Perfectly. Fully. And finally. And now through the bestowal of the Spirit, you can keep his word if you've come to him. Well, the second test that belongs to our paternity test is true children of God rest in confidence on Christ. They don't merely just keep his word. They rest in confidence on Christ. Because students, if you're just to think about an answer to this question, according to this passage, on what, on whom, rests the Jews' confidence? It's quite clear, isn't it? Throughout the passage. Abraham. What do they keep saying to Jesus? Jesus, we are children of Abraham. It's biology. It's paternity. It's pedigree. It's performance. That's why we're okay. And we're probably not going to stand in here today. Any of us. If any of us. And say, well, we are Abraham's children but so often, people can answer that question of eternity by saying, I'm a member of this church. I was baptized so many years ago. My pedigree is this. My performance has been this. And what Jesus is saying, the only thing that lasts, the only thing that matters is that you have confidence on him. Because the Bible says there's only one sure and steadfast anchor for sinful souls like ours. And that's Christ Jesus himself. And of course, it's the truth about Christ Jesus himself that leads us to the final part of our test. True children of God, they keep Christ's word. They rest in confidence on Christ. And we can say, lastly, true children of God believe the claims of Christ. I mean, that's what the Gospel of John is here to do over and over, isn't it? To tell us who Jesus says that he is. And that seeing such truth, we might find light and life in him. And what has he told us? Even before we get to the end of the passage, what has he already told us? Well, verse 36, he's the sovereign savior. He says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Not you might be, you could be, you will be free indeed. I can do it. 
I hope you leave today saying he has done it. He's not just the sovereign savior. You'll notice even he's the deliverer from death because once again he says, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That final punishment has no power over Christ's people. But what is that truth that explodes on the Jew's mind that causes them to immediately want his execution? It's not that he's the sovereign savior. It's not that he's the deliverer from death. It's that he says he's God. Right? Verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now kids, if you're in a language or grammar class right now in school, you might realize that the grammar of the passage doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You might think Jesus would say something like, well, before Abraham was, I was. But why do they pick up stones to kill him? They know what that phrase means, don't they? Jews in the first century, before Abraham was, I am. When Moses was at the burning bush and God called him to go back to Egypt, to redeem his people from bondage and slavery. He said, well, they're going to ask me who sent me, so what should I say? And what does Yahweh say to Abraham? Say that I am sent you. The eternal, the timeless, the absolute essence of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And they can't take it, so it's why the passage ends. Of course, verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself. And went out of the temple. I suppose it's, it's not too silly to say we all must throw something at Jesus today. We could throw stones of unbelief or unrepentance at him. And let that not be what you throw at him today. Let it be recognizing he is the sovereign savior. That he's a deliverer from death. That he sets free that he brings life, that he is God himself. Here is a sure and steadfast foundation for you to cast and throw your very life. He can forgive my sins. I who belong to Satan now can have a father in heaven, a father whose glory shines forth in the face of the one speaking. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be a people that know what it means to not just believe the truth of Christ Jesus, but to keep it with our whole heart. Lord, convict us and correct us where we need it. Comfort us and strengthen us where we need it, knowing that you are faithful and you will surely do it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.